Now, for those of you who remain, I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 13 to 17. Now, I was very tempted to have us read the entire chapter, chapter 2, but I didn't want to get sidetracked, and I didn't want people focusing on the first part of the chapter, which, which concerns the coming of the lawless one, and the, and, and the spirit that now keeps restrained the lawless one from being fully manifest. And I didn't want us getting all sidetracked about that, um, because the important part for us today is the fact that Paul is asserting in the first half of the chapter that this spirit of lawlessness that will ultimately culminate in the manifestation of a singular lawless one is already at work. And because of this, there are many antichrists in the world around us. There are many opposing persons and perspectives that would claim the right to have our heart allegiance. And there is presently a deluding spirit in the world because people refuse to love righteousness and refuse to love the truth. Okay? That's the point that's germane for us. I didn't want to read that first part of the chapter because I didn't want us getting focused on who the Antichrist is. All right? Because what is germane to us today is this last part of the chapter. In the midst of all this conversation that Paul is having with them about the fact that there's a lawless one coming and the world around us is deceived and is being deceived, he says these words to us here. Look with me, please, at chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the hope and assurance that it brings to us. Help us to be transformed by it as we submit ourselves to it. For Christ's sake, we ask this. Amen. At the beginning of one of my favorite musicals, in fact, it's one of the few musicals I like, there's a poor Russian Jewish milkman. And he describes the precarious situation in which their little Jewish community finds themselves in early 20th century Russia. And he, after going through how, how precarious it is that there's always this, this Russian Orthodox part of the population that doesn't really trust them, and, and after going through the, the accounting of how difficult it is for them to make it in their society, 
he likens their standing to that of a fiddler on a roof. Standing up there on the pointed precipice of a Russian cottage, making his tune. And he said, that is a good picture of how we are in our society. I like that musical. We, the members of Grace Covenant Church, we, Christians in 21st century America, at the dawn of 2016, find ourselves in a very similar situation. Over the year of 2015, a lot of cultural shifts manifested themselves in our country, and we find ourselves in the midst of a culture that has gone mad. A culture that has declared war on reality itself. Just last week, I read that in Washington State, uh, gender identities on restrooms are now basically irrelevant. You can just go. You can walk into a public restroom of whatever, and hey, people in there just got to deal with it. And if you have a problem with it, then it's, you're the problem. Okay. That's just a tip of the iceberg. Now, this year will bring its challenges. This year will bring its, its opportunities. This year will bring its, its unique contribution to our larger story. But what about us finding a way? Are we going to be like the Russian Jews in this little town, standing on the precipice of a roof, playing our fiddle? How do we find our way? How do we chart our course in the new year in the midst of a culture that has gone crazy? That's the question for us. And incidentally, our passage tells us how to do this. It's right there in front of our faces in verse 15 this morning. What does he say in verse 15? So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm and hold. Two verbs to describe a singular action. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Incidentally, in that very same musical, right after he points out that we're like this fiddler on the roof, he asks the rhetorical question, well, how do we keep our balance up there? How do we keep from falling? And he says, this I can tell you in one word. And what's that one word? Tradition. Tradition. Now, for that community, tradition was something. But incidentally, for us, we have the Apostle Paul telling us to hold to our traditions. I don't know about you, but I feel uncomfortable when I read verses like this. Maybe it's because I'm in a post-60s world. Maybe it's because I'm a Protestant and I see how the Roman Catholic Church and Orthodox churches have, have set up this tradition thing that they conveniently pull out anytime they want to undermine Scripture. Uh, maybe it's because um, we see Jesus himself condemning the Pharisees for elevating their traditions above the Word of God. 
for whatever reason, I become kind of leery of the concept of tradition. I mean, let's face it. Every TV show, book, song, they act like tradition, whatever that is, is a bad thing, and that if it's been done for a long time, then that itself is a reason why it needs to go. So it seems kind of weird and unsettling to me then when I look at a passage like this. And what do we have Paul saying? Hold fast to the traditions that were set before us. Now what I would like to do this morning is unpack what it would mean for us. What would it look like for us to stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that were taught to us? What would it mean for us this year? Three things I would want to suggest. And this is absolutely important. It is important that you understand that we can never, ever keep traditions in the sense of earning relationship with God. When I was a boy, my favorite cookie was an Oreo. My wife still loves them. And our boys love them. And so whenever Kay buys a thing of Oreo cookies, she'll hide them in the cupboard somewhere because she doesn't want the kids to get at them. And when I was a boy, man, I used to love, I'd, I'd gently un, sort of unscrew the top, you know, unscrew the two wafers so I could scrape off the, the little cream filling. And then I would take those two wafers and I would dunk them in the milk and stuff. But as I've grown older and, and I've come to appreciate just the full Oreo experience. So when I eat an Oreo... I just eat it. It is important that we understand that the things we do, the call that we have from God to do anything, is very much like that Oreo cookie. What comes before it, what comes after it, what completely surrounds our doing is the good news of what God has done for us. In order for us to be Christian, in order for us to think Christianly, we have to completely grasp the notion that everything good that we have doesn't come because of us. It comes to us because of a gracious God. Christians do not think that God loves us because we are good. Christians think that God will make us good because He loves us. What do I mean? Look in this passage. Verses 13 and 14 start out by comforting us with the knowledge that God, the Trinity, is invested in your well-being. We are, according to verse 13, beloved by the Lord. Now remember that any time in the New Testament when you see the word God differentiated from the word Lord, Lord refers to Jesus and God refers to the Father. Okay? So we're beloved by the Lord, so we're beloved by the Son. Beloved is a special term. There's love in the covenantal sense where we can, in our mind, justify some sort of absence of emotion. It's it's faithfulness. But beloved is always a term of endearment. You are an object of delight. The Son cherishes you. And then what does it say? 
God chose us. Okay, so that's differentiated from Lord. So God, that's the Father then. So you're precious to the Son, and God the Father chose you as the first fruits. So in the midst of a world gone crazy, God looked down from heaven and said, you know what? I love you, and I choose you, and I choose you, and I choose you. You're precious to the Son, you're precious to the Father. And what then? To be sanctified by the Spirit. Now what is sanctification but the operating work of the Holy Spirit in us, indwelling us, empowering us, moving us and wooing us to be more like Jesus? So in verse 13 then we see the Son, the Father, and the Spirit all embrace and accept you. And then on the other end of the cookie, we have verse 16 and 17, where he commends us to the care of God because he understands that the only possible way that we can stand firm and hold fast to the traditions we've received is if we're enabled by the work of God in our lives. So surrounding this command to stand firm and hold fast, we have the work of God on both sides. Understand this. The most important theological lesson you can learn today, this year, this lifetime, is that your standing with God is not on the basis of how wonderful you are. Your standing with God is on the basis of Him having loved you, chosen you, and sanctified you from eternity past. You are precious to God. Now, that resulted in God doing something for you. So often, Christians run themselves ragged because they think that what Jesus did on the front end was to get them in the door, but staying in the house is, is up to them. That they, that they better keep running, they better not get off that treadmill, or else, or else God's going to chuck them to the curb. And Christians get tired. They think if God's going to keep accepting me, it's up to me and my good works. No. If you are loved of God, you're part of his family. Have you ever met people what happens to, and seen what happens to someone when they're desperately trying to be accepted by somebody else? How they get tired and when they think that the acceptance is just being dangled in front of them like a, like a carrot before the donkey, they end up becoming angry, don't they? Why won't you just accept my best? Why won't you just accept it? I'm trying, I'm trying. And the good news is that God has accepted you. The only reason you can stand is because God accepts you. So, that's our starting point. If you're in Christ, you are accepted. But, then we do get to the meat of our, our command. The tradition we were taught. Wow. Interestingly enough, that whole thing I just said about grace being the, the, like the Oreo cookie that surrounds and, and, and how we're accepted by God, 
that is part of the tradition that we were taught. What do I mean by tradition? Well, in modern parlance, a tradition is just something that you've been doing for a long time. There's no, nothing special about it at all. Just something that's been done, and in our cultural context, because it's been done for a long time, it's inherently suspect. In the Greek, the word connotes that body of content that conveys the usness of any sort of people group. And you get that in the Latin then, which transcribes this. The, our English word tradition comes almost directly from the Latin word traditio, which is the transliteration of the Greek. And in Latin, it refers to those things that make up a group that are passed on for safekeeping. So that way the group identity doesn't die with the first set of people. Think about everything that makes us who we are. What we believe and what we do. In a culture, we have cultural artifacts, works of art that depict our values and, and our engineering, architecture. All these things reinforce our sense of identity of who we are. Now, we have this in the church. We had it from the beginning, a sense of what we believe and what we do. This is called the apostolic tradition. Faithfulness to the word of God. Our tradition basically falls under two categories. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Right belief and right conduct. The tradition that we have received from the apostles, the body of doctrine that we have received from the Lord Jesus via the Holy Spirit through the apostles, shapes not only our doctrinal formulations, but it shapes our ethical imperatives. You see the ethical side of it in chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul specifically says that people have to walk in accordance with the traditions we've received. To walk in accordance refers to your lifestyle. So, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now, pause real quick. In the name of trying to please God, do more for God, prove something to God, think of how many well-intentioned people have ultimately steered off course thinking that they have to come up with something new. And in the face of this, Paul then says, hold firm to what you've received. Don't depart from it. As soon as you get away from that basic fact that God accepts you in Christ, you're on the road to having to construct something else in its place to form the basis of your acceptability with God. And then you'll stumble headlong into idolatry. And then you, like the rest in the first part of the chapter, will be deceived. So we have two key facets of holding the tradition that we receive from the apostles. Believing right and living right. Now, believing right, well, we, we in, in the PCA, we have a, an awesome statement of faith. We have this thing called the Westminster Confession. And it's, it's not infallible by any means. But it is a remarkably tight uh, 
exposition of what the Scriptures teach systematically on a whole range of subjects. It's very good. And to think that it was written over 400 years ago, I mean, it's, it's amazingly well-written and well-put together. We have a very good, faithful system of doctrine. Now, living right, what, does that mean, you know, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do? Is that what it means? <laughs> I don't think that's what it means. It means that there is a way of thinking. There is a way of conducting oneself that is in accord with these right doctrines. One of the things that people can sometimes do is adapt this notion, well, well, change is bad. It says to hold firm, you know, hold the line, you know, so I'm going to get this curmudgeonly old attitude, and this is, you know, and I'm, and I'm going to take what we believe, and I'm just going to hold on to it, and I'm going to plant my, my flag in the sand. I'm not budging. Now, that attitude, while it sounds like I'm being faithful, it ultimately entrenches a cultural attitude and a way of doing things because our ideas have consequences. What you believe affects what you do. And we become cut off from the part of the apostolic tradition that calls for cultural sensitivity. When we just take our flag and plant it in the sand and I'm not budging, we typically mean more when the rubber meets the road than I'm going to affirm the Trinity, and I'm going to affirm the virgin birth of Jesus, and I'm going to affirm the resurrection. We typically mean we're going to also keep enshrined the way we do things. Because the way we do things is who we are. It's good enough for me. It's good enough for the people to my left and right. It'll be good enough for the people who come next. Otherwise, we'll shut this place down. You know how many church shut this place down because they refuse to change how they do things? A lot. And so, we cut ourselves off from faithfulness then. Because part of the apostolic tradition we've received is when you go into a new place, you take a look around, and you formulate and present the unchanging truth in a way that makes sense to where you're at. Paul does not preach in the, in the uh, synagogues the same way he does on the streets of Athens. Does he? No. Same message, different method. So, faithfulness requires not only that we hold the right doctrines, but that we have the right attitude. That our hearts are moved by the impulses that will be faithful. One of the very interesting things And this is another point of contrast between conservative Christianity and conservative Islam. Is conservative Christianity does not require us to take a photo snapshot of the way time, the way cultural practices were done at at some point in history and say this was the holy time and this, if you're going to be faithful, you have to live your life the way it was lived at this point in history. But that is precisely what faithful conservative Islam does. This is the way people lived in in the Middle Ages, and therefore, that's what faithfulness looks like. So if you're going to be faithful now, you have to do that. And in the Middle Ages, man, they were brutal. This is why we don't find wives the way they did in the Old Testament. 
because we don't baptize as holy a particular cultural context that they found themselves in. God's unchanging word comes into and infiltrates a culture, a context that has other values, other notions, and transforms it. Or at least calls out a transformed remnant that will faithfully proclaim the kingdom in its time, location. So what are we to do? What are we to do? We have a choice to make at the dawning of this new day. Our culture is going mad around us. Boys are girls and girls are boys and maybe they're all just penguins or something like that. What do we do? Do we just say, this is who we are? We're going to plant our flag in the sand? Take it or leave it. Not only do we believe certain things, but we're going to do certain things, and if you don't like it, hit the road. Or, do we embrace the fact that Jesus Christ has put us here and now with an unchanging gospel in the midst of a people who are literally dying? They are literally deceived and being deceived and happily deceived. And they desperately need the good news of the forgiveness of sins while it is the day of forgiveness. And will we figure out how to touch each other's lives to equip, encourage, and empower one another to take that message to those around us? You have different spheres of influence than I do. There's not a single person here who has the same sphere as the person across. And if each of us, with our concentric spheres of influence, take the good news into that area, think about the maximized impact we would have. It would be amazing. I love the fact that this church has a mission statement. Did you know that this church has a mission statement? Did you know that? Yeah, it's right there in your bylaws. To love God and worship Him as we reach and disciple people for Jesus Christ. To love God and worship Him as we reach people and disciple them for Jesus Christ. Love God and worship Him as we reach people and disciple them for Jesus Christ. Great, that's our mission. How do we do that? How do we do that? See, I think that's a faithful, that's a faithful, very tightly packed statement. And I think that that statement reflects the values that the apostles handed down to us. Don't you? Yeah. So we see the way ahead is not to come up with something new, but rather to hold on to what came behind. To hold on to the past in its best sense. The values, the propositions, the doctrines that we have received, cling to them because they guide us. They will keep your vessel pointed in the right direction. I would like to suggest five ways that we can apply this mission statement and work it out in our lives as a congregation, as families, and as individuals this year. Five ways. Incidentally, they all start with the letter E. Some of the elders have already seen this. Good for them. That's what you get if you're an elder. If you're jealous, well, we'll have nominations in a few months. <laughs> but there are five ways, I believe, 
that we can apply this mission statement that faithfully, I think, summarizes our duties as Christians. The first is to enjoy God's blessings. Again, we must never, ever get away from the fact that our standing with God is a result of God's efforts, not ours. As soon as you forget that, you're going to run yourself ragged because you think your acceptability with God is up to you and your behavior. We must always sit back and enjoy what God has done for us. When you enter into a home that is relaxed because the people there accept and love one another, you leave that place feeling relaxed and refreshed, don't you? There's almost an air, an atmosphere in that home. Let's be a church that we enjoy what God has done for us, that we're, people don't come in here thinking that we are tensed out, trying to be accepted by God and whatever. Our acceptability is taken care of. Jesus has secured our acceptability. There is nothing that you and I can do that his blood couldn't have done. So let's enjoy what God has done for us. Second, let's exalt our Lord in joyful, reverential, biblical worship. It's an amazing thing, the way we were hardwired as creatures. The more we make of God, guess what? the better our human relationships are. You show me someone who is making much of God, and I'll show you someone who is delighting in the things of God, and that goodness will overflow into our other relationships. God is to be made much of. We meet with Him. He is glorious, and He will transform us. People aren't transformed by good news stories. They're transformed by encounters of the living God. So, I don't want to have moral lessons up here. I'm not just going to come up here and talk to you about the evils of nuclear armament or whatever that you might hear in some other places. We're going to talk about the Word of God and how it applies to us and how it points us to God, the only one who can save our souls and satisfy our hearts. So let's exalt this great God in worship. Enjoy His blessings. Exalt Him in worship encourage each other to love and good works. Encourage each other. Not poke, not prod, not provoke. Encourage. Sometimes we need some criticism, some helpful criticism, but many times I would suggest that we need a lesson on how to offer that constructive criticism in an encouraging way. Let's think of ways whether it's by taking meals to the sick or baskets to widows or helping someone out who can't reach uh, their, I don't know, to clean the windows on their second floor of their house, whatever it is. Let's think of ways where we can encourage one another. Because as we encourage one another, we manifest the love of God and we inspire them then to do the same. Fourth, through equipping one another for service. Encouraging and equipping are both, they're, they're, they're different elements of the same basic purpose of fellowship and discipleship. But equipping refers to how we prepare and train each other. We have classes that are starting. Let's make sure that our classes are done well. 
Let's make sure that every sermon I prepare, every lesson you teach, that it is done well so people can get the most bang for the buck. Let's make sure that what we're teaching is actually relevant to where people are. Let's make sure that we are modeling so that people can learn from us how to do certain things when we get together. And and, and let's make opportunities for people to develop skills so they too can bless the body and go serve. Think about whatever skill you have. You didn't, it didn't just fall out from the miracle tree and land on your head. You had to learn it. That meant someone had to teach it. We have some talented people in this church in many different areas. Let's make sure that we are equipping one another for service then, okay? So let's enjoy God's blessings. Let's exalt Him in worship. Let's encourage one another to love and good deeds. And let's equip one another for service And finally, let's take all that together and let's engage this culture around us as salt and light with the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in our Paulding County context, in your spheres of influence, and then we have this wonderful thing called a missions committee, and we as a church support missions that that, that labor outside of the reach of our fingers. What a great thing. So as we support them through things like our normal giving and then our, our, our Christmas Eve missions offering, which, which yielded a, an amazing amount, it was a huge blessing, we are exponentially increasing our impact to take the gospel around the world. So five ways, I think, that we can flesh out our mission statement of loving God and worshiping Him as we reach and disciple people for Jesus Christ. We can enjoy, exalt, encourage, equip, and engage. So, here we are. The dawning of 2016. As I look over our church's 13-year history, I see that we've had some good founding traditions. We've adopted a good statement. We've adopted good doctrinal standards. And we started out very much pointed in the right direction. But then, let's just be honest, perhaps along the way there were some other seeds sown. Maybe some other anti-traditions were allowed to take root and start sprouting. Some traditions maybe of division or dissension or pride or ego. I don't know. Maybe? Just maybe? Maybe now is the time for us to go back and say, you know what? We got to get rid of that. And let's rip those anti-traditions out. You got to rip it out by the roots. It's like kudzu. I mean, it's really hard to get rid of unless you just take some drastic action. But maybe it's time for that drastic action. Let's get rid of that. It's got to go. Because it gets in the way of us being and doing and savoring all that God has done for us. 2016 is going to be a great year. I am thrilled about all the opportunities. I'm thrilled about the things we're planning. I'm thrilled. Will you join me? Will you join together as a church? And let's march forward, advancing the cause of Christ right here where we are, right now when we are. I invite you.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have given us a safe deposit of your word in Scripture. Help us to derive our sense of identity from it. Help us to cling to it. Help us to creatively engage our culture in faithfulness to the apostolic example. Help us to enjoy what you have done, to exalt you in our worship, to encourage one another and to equip one another and to engage this world. Help us to have the courage and the will and the faith to perhaps rip out those anti-traditions that have taken root in perhaps our own lives. And let us turn to you, the giver of every good thing. For Christ's sake, amen.